0: Our scripture from today comes from Mark chapter 7. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean or unwashed hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands? And he answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrine's human commands. Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. He also said to them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is korban, that is, an offering devoted to God. You no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many other similar things. Summoning the crowd again, he told them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. When he went into the house, away from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, Are you also lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of people's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. And all these evil things come from within and defile a person. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Would you pray with me? God, we ask that by your spirit we would be moved and transformed by the teaching of Jesus. That we would see your son, who he is and what he's done. And that we would be changed as well. In Christ's name, amen. So there's now a shift in Mark's storytelling. Um, We've been following the life and the work of Jesus, and thus far it's been miracle heavy, right? There's been a lot of teaching. The teaching of Jesus is implied, right, in that first statement that he gives repent because the kingdom of God is at hand, the teaching of Jesus is implied, but it's been pretty miracle heavy, right? We've seen demons cast out, we've seen thousands fed with meager portions, we've seen Jesus walk on water, we've seen Jesus yell at a storm, and the storm bow to his will, Right, We've seen Jesus move in miraculous ways, and now Jesus comes into this place where he is going to be engaging largely with the Pharisees. He's going to be doing things and teaching in ways that uh, <clears throat> speak to the Jewish people of his day and that are beginning to show a little bit of, and we see this a lot in this text, the heart of God for God's people. Jesus is engaging with the Pharisees, and I love how this happens. He's actually not. But the Pharisees are those kind of people, right? The Pharisees are the ones who see something and they can't help but be right. They love being right. And so they always interject themselves into situations, especially with Jesus, where they can prove him wrong, and themselves right. It's a sort of self-justification, but we can come back to that, I think, another week. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus, just like everyone else. They've come from Jerusalem I think, and this is speculation, but I I really do strongly believe that the word of what Jesus is doing, the depth of his teaching, the work that he's doing in the synagogue, the miraculous deeds that Jesus is doing, not only are they spreading amongst the poor, they're spreading amongst everybody and they're kind of working their way through the spiritual ranks, right? The the religious, I should say, ranks, and they make their way to some of the Pharisees and the scribes in Jerusalem, and they come down now to meet this Jesus from Nazareth. And the first thing that happens is that they go and they see Jesus with his disciples eating. And as they observe them, what they realize is that the food is set out and the disciples come and they just sit down and eat. They don't wash their hands. Now, listen, um, wash your hands, (laughs) right? Like, I think, so if we're in a place, right, if you're in a restaurant and you happen to be in the bathroom when somebody who works there, like a chef, right, like comes in and of course, they've got their chef gear. I don't know. You know they a chef there. And they go, they use the bathroom, and they just walk right out. You're leaving. Or you're at least questioning the food, right? Like, I guess it depends on how good the restaurant is. I don't know. Like, different people have different standards depending on the quality of food. Maybe not. But at least in your mind, you've sort of logged Like, that's nasty. All right? Now, this is not what's going on here. I want us to be clear because if we read this at first blush, right, at first glance, we look and we see, we see the Pharisees like, your disciples didn't wash their hands, like, their hands like, Jesus, what's going on, right? And to you, that might be like, yeah, like, tell your disciples to wash your hands. But here's the thing. Here's one of the ways we know it's not like that. Like, if, if we were to go somewhere, right, and I'm not Jesus, I'm not close, I'd love to be more and more like Jesus as I go. But we know where, like I'm just not close. But let's just say, in church terms, we went somewhere, and and I went, and I went with the Andersons because I looked at them, and uh, they they came, and they all sat down, and none of them washed their hands and started eating, right? And what wouldn't happen is somebody observing, see Beth, like with just dirty hands, not not even caring, just eating her food, see her and then come to me and be like, "Uh, Pastor Sean, I noticed that Union Church people don't wash their hands. Could you maybe instruct them to do that, right? They wouldn't do that. Why? Because there's an assumption that something basic and hygienic like washing your hands, a grown person doesn't need a pastor to tell them to do. In the same way, we can recognize that this isn't just about they've been out sweating, oh, they went and sneezed in their hands, and they didn't walk. This, this isn't about germs. This goes further than that. There is a spiritual component to what the, the Pharisees and the scribes see in the disciples, and so they call Jesus out on it, not because like the disciples are like teenage kids who need a parent to... or teenagers shouldn't need it right it's not because they're like little children who need a parent to remind them now wash your hands it's because jesus is their spiritual leader he's their rabbi they're his disciples and they see the disciples not observing a spiritual custom a religious custom and as their religious leader they are looking to jesus to correct them And so they say, look, they're eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. But I I like how the, I like how, uh, and we saw the differences in the translations, that's my bad. But I like the way that they talk about it. It's ceremonially unclean hands. You see, there were a lot of cleanliness laws in the Old Testament, weren't there? Foods you could eat, things you could do before you Things you could do to be in the temple. Like God seems ridiculously concerned with cleanliness. And he created laws about it. But one of the laws that you don't see is the one that the Pharisees are holding the disciples. Because you see, uh, we talked about this before when we talked about legalism and how the Pharisees and, and religious people tend to see God's law, know they shouldn't break God's law because obedience to God is right. We ought to obey God. But in fear of disobeying God, they're like, I'm not even going to get close to disobeying God. And they ask, like, so what's the line that we can go to? All right, and then at that line, they make a new law. They fence the law. And then they're like, then after a hundred years or so, they're like, they begin to conflate the law of man with the law of God, right? And they're like, we don't want to break the law of God, but now they're not even talking about the law of God, they're talking about tradition. And so they create a new line and a new line, and one of those new lines is that there must be a ceremonial washing of hands that you do, like a process that you do to make yourself clean so that you can eat at the table, Right? To e- eat food. And so this isn't about cleanliness, and this isn't even about obeying God. Ultimately, this is about religious control. But, beyond that, this is about the point of the law. You see, because for the Pharisees, the point of the law was to bind people to bind them. But to God, as we see reflected in Jesus, the point of the law was to transform them. Now, if you're like thinking through the entire storyline of scripture, and especially the epistles, you might come at me and say, well, Paul said that the law is like a doula, right? A slave that cares specifically for the children and binds them up until Christ comes. That is what Paul said in Galatians. You're right. And in another place, it says that that the law wasn't, that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill it. And so the author of the letter to the Hebrews says, now the law we are no longer under, but we're under grace, right? And, And so you may be looking at these things and saying, well, if the law is a slave meant to bind us up, and the law is... <clears throat> is something that we are no longer under how does that jive with you saying that god and therefore jesus in his teaching understood the law as something that transforms that's what we're going to talk about all right and so jesus comes and and he says <clears throat> the, the disciples say to him why don't your disciples live according to according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands. And this is what Jesus said. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. The Pharisees understood the law. The Pharisees knew the scriptures. The Pharisees were theological scholars. And all of their knowledge of the law, all of their doctrinal study, all of their adherence to the words of the law, they somehow missed the heart of it. The Pharisees missed the heart of the law because they missed the law of the heart. God, through the law, is trying to first show us the broken state of each of our hearts. It's interesting that you wouldn't necessarily get that as you read the law, right? As you read it, you're like, no, what God is trying to show us is that pork and shrimp are bad, right? And that uh, ceremonial washings are good and that blood, we just, just blood, lots of it. We sang a song that I know can be uncomfortable for some, right? But there is a fountain filled with blood. Think about the law and how much blood there is in it. Did this wrong? Kill a goat. Did this wrong? Kill the fatted calf. Kill, kill, blood, blood. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And then even when you zoom out and you take a look at the Old Testament, and sometimes it's hard to look at the Old Testament, but there is blood in every book, it feels like. Whether it's the blood of animals or the blood of people, there is blood shed all over the Old Testament. And it's hard. It's difficult. And and if you look at it at face value, and you don't look at also the metaphors and the work that God is doing here, then you miss something that we tend to miss. And that blood is not just physical. Right, it is. It's it's material. It's matter. It's liquid. And, right, like it has form and takes up space. But, but it's not like flesh. It's not... L- Like your fingernails, blood connects directly to the heart. And it did for them as well. See, like, this is the weird thing about blood, and kind of the cool thing about blood, at least in an ancient Near Eastern sense, is that it is one of the few things that's tied both to the spirit and the body. It connects directly to the heart. And so all of this bloodletting and without the shedding of blood, there cannot be the forgiveness of sins and and these stories of I'm going to give you, I'm going to remove your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh so that blood can pump through you again. Like blood was the life source. You let blood, like what's amazing is that this isn't even that far removed from us now, is it? Right? What do we do all the time? Blood drives, give blood. Blood is life. It's the life source, right? Less than 300 years ago, people were like, you're sick. Something's in your blood. Let's let blood and somehow that's going to heal you. They didn't understand blood, but they understood that it had something to do with the source of life, health and unhealth. Consider even less than 50 years ago, 60 years ago, the way that racism played out in this world and in this country. What was the rule? the one drop rule. What did that mean? That if even one drop of your blood was of African descent, you were black. You were in that category. Why? Because the very essence of the person, and this was the misunderstanding for a long time about race, was that race was somehow biological and bound up in the blood. But it was about who you were. If you had a drop of blood, I am pure blood. Even like Harry Potter recognizes this in the way that they talk about mud bloods, right? Like that it's a, it's an offense, but what is it saying? It's saying something of your blood is not pure and it connects not just to your flesh, but to your very essence and your life. It connects to your heart and who you are. And see, Jesus recognizes that the law is not just about actions. It's about God separating for himself a people who are transformed by his rule and by his love, his grace, and his blessing. See, the laws don't start like this. Do this, 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 and this, and you'll be my people. It says, I've called you out of Of the Chaldeans, or I've called you out of Egypt. I've made you my people. And now, hear, O Israel, the name that they already have. Hear, O Israel, hear the Lord your God is one. He doesn't say, The Lord out there is one, and if you want him to be your God, he says, The Lord your God is one. You shall not have any other gods before me. Right? The law, the imperatives flow from, they proceed from the indicatives. And so what's happening in the law is God is saying, I have called you a people, and now through my law, I am shaping you into the people that have already called you. It's remarkable. Because all of a sudden, the law isn't about things, and it should be no surprise when we get the commentary here from Mark that... <clears throat> that he's declaring all foods clean, that's in verse 19, right? Like, that shouldn't be surprising because it was never about foods in the first place. It was about the setting apart and the making holy of a people. And that comes not through actions, but through the heart. But actions matter. Right? The law is about transforming the heart. But also... The law is about recognizing the lordship of God. Listen to really what this fight is about. In verse 8, he goes on, he says, Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. And then he gives a scathing example. He also said to them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's commands. Like, you are snakes. This is the most scathing indictment we've seen from Jesus in the book so far. You are snakes. You are sneaky. And you have this way about you of invalidating the commands of God in order to set up your traditions. For Moses said, honor your mother and father. Now, when he says Moses, what he really is saying is God. God said through the prophet Moses. When he says Moses, that actually is is another way that they would say the law. There was Moses and there were the prophets. And that's what Tanakh was broken into. Torah was broken into. Moses, the law, and the prophets. The law and the prophets. The law didn't simply emanate from Moses, but because everyone understood Moses as Authoring the first five books of the Bible, they attribute the law to Moses, understanding that God gave the law. Moses didn't create this in his head, right? There wasn't like a team of elders that were like, you know what? I've found that if you undercook pork, it really hurts you. So let's just say, don't eat pork. And then they were like, yeah, but people love pork. I mean, in all fairness, it's awesome. I don't think it's going to be enough. And then they're like, yeah, good point. Let's say God said it. The Lord your God says don't eat pork. Like, that's not how the law emerged that's not how we understand and believe the law to emerge we believe that God in his love for his people spoke to Moses and said write these things down in fact at one point Moses shatters them and then God's like I got you and he's got another set of stones that he writes on he writes the law on the stones right like this is incredible this is where the law comes from but it's the law of God and he says for Moses God through Moses said honor your father and your mother and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. That's, that's harsh. That's the law of God. And sometimes I want to, like, paint it <laughs> on the doorway in my house. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but. I was going to say, I'm sure my mom did as well. <laughs> Um, But here's the thing. That's the next point, so I'm going to slow back. But, Jesus says, You say, if anyone tells his father or mother whatever benefit you might have received from me is korban, that is, offering devoted to God, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many other similar things. Now, korban and this practice... Uh, We don't really, it's not done anymore, it's hard to really know like the details of what Jesus is saying, but functionally what would happen is part of honoring your mother and father, and, and Melissa and I had a conversation about this yesterday, part of honoring your mother and father in that time was actually taking care of them. There's this cycle, we all live through it whether we want to or not, Lord willing actually we live through it, wherein in the beginning you are completely under the care of your parents you can't do for yourself. And then eventually you learn from your parents how to do for yourself. You learn how to live and be human and to to get dressed on your own and to eventually earn money and to pay the bills and take care of yourself. But as time progresses, it wins and takes a toll and there comes a moment where your parents can no longer do for themselves the full extent of what they can. That's a hard time for everybody. It's hard for the parents because they're used to being autonomous and they're having to come to grips with the, t- the reality that they're not anymore. It's hard for the children because it's not how we see our parents. And we also know that this is the victorious march of time. That's hard, but it's what happens. And you take care of your parents. And in the ancient Near East, you didn't put your parents in a home. There were no homes because you didn't put your parents at home, right? You didn't avoid them. You didn't move to another part of the country and just, you know, kind of hope that their home church or whatever will figure out how to care for them. You were with them. They were in your home. Your money went to the care and provision for them. You didn't steal from your parents because in a lot of senses the inheritance that you were get was coming from them anyway. Like there's this weird, and not weird, actually I think quite appropriate and beautiful sense of honoring your parents in this culture. And there were gifts that were devoted to basically tithes. So you have to understand what the Pharisees are doing here. Uh, Today we have a word that we, or a term we use called spiritual abuse. It's a real thing. Abusing authority in the name of God. Right? That's functionally what the Pharisees were doing. It would be me saying, it would be a sin. To take care of your parents with the money that you should be sacrificially above and beyond the tithe that God has called you to giving to the church. Now you can see how duplicitous that is. Because in that day, uh, there weren't buildings and ministry that they had to pay for. That meant them. In other words, they were no different than the tax collectors robbing people of their money, but the difference was actually way worse because they were doing it in the name of God. It wasn't, in fact, you should give sacrificially and. Trust that God will provide for your parents. It was, if you give that to your parents, you are breaking the tradition of, uh, of, of your elders given to you by God. And therefore, your standing with God is poor. And we may do things, and they did things, like bar you and your parents from the temple. Like, the abuse is disgusting. And Jesus calls them to task on it. He says, not only... Are you creating traditions for yourself? You're undermining the law in order to do so. You're doing it for power and for, for glory. You're stealing from God. You're missing the point of the law. The law is first about the heart, but then also it's about reminding us that God is Lord and we are not. See, the Pharisees set themselves up as Lord. And this is the final point. Because as they set themselves up as Lord now, they've come to a place where they are standing over everyone else in judgment. But isn't that what happens when you set yourself up as Lord? Like, Isn't that what happens in legalism? You create a law beyond the law of God, and then you hold others accountable to that law, missing the ways that you are missing the law. But you set yourself up, establish yourself as judge. See, when Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged first, because in the manner that you judge, so too will you be judged. He's not saying don't make judgments. He's saying, don't establish yourself as the judge of all peoples. You are not God. Judgments are made. You know something by its fruit. You can look at the fruit and say, this is not of God. But you are not judge. You do not establish yourself over over the people because what will eventually and inevitably happen is what happens with the Pharisees here. Now, not only are you standing over the people as judge, you begin to stand over God himself. Like, notice, their attack is not directed. Their judgment is not directed at the disciples. Why aren't you guys washing your hands? We have a system here. right? Who is their judgment directed at? Jesus. God himself. The word made flesh. They find themselves in judgment over Jesus. Now I want to tell you, church, that that is not the place you want to be. The law is God standing in judgment over us. And when I say judgment there, I don't mean fire and brimstone and throwing down. I mean God saying, I'm the judge, I'm the king, I'm over you. I reveal to you who you are, not the other way around. And they're standing in judgment over Jesus. Now, they have not seen Jesus resurrected. Ultimately, that won't matter because of the condition of their heart. But even for us, like we've seen Jesus, or we know Jesus resurrected. We've received the witness and the testimony of Jesus resurrected. And yet and still, we stand in judgment over Jesus by making little outs in the law that benefit us, right? Jesus said, love your enemy. He left no conditions on that. And yet, we find ourselves creating ways to justify the abuse, the disdain, the disregard, or even apathy for those who we would consider enemies. Jesus said that it's harder for a rich person, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into heaven. And we find ways to justify ourselves in that. Well, he means richness in spirit, haughtiness, arrogance. We find ways around what Jesus said. So we stand in judgment of the very words of Jesus as we stand in judgment calling out people's sins that may be visible while denying and hiding and overlooking our own sin. And Jesus says, you honor me with lips but your hearts are nowhere near me. This is how he ends. Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? He's saying, listen, all of your laws are about washing hands, about cleanliness, and about doing this. And you missed it. Things that go in can't defile the heart. No, the things that come out of people's hearts. That's what defiles. Evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murder, adultery, greed, evil actions, deceit, self indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Right? Wearing two different types of cloth, of fabric, blended together as one, doesn't cause racism. Right? Well, like, eating pork has never caused sexual adultery or immorality. Do you see what Jesus is saying? I mean, Jesus is saying all these ceremonial cleansing things, even of the law, like they're not what's causing you to sin. It's not the outward thing. You eat it, it does its thing, it's gone. This is literally what Jesus says, right? But it's what starts on the inside. Jesus understands things like this. From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus understands that what we don't need is simple behavior modification. What we need is heart transformation. And that is what Jesus is teaching here. Heart transformation. The point of the law is to show you just how selfish and inward and sinful your heart actually is. Not other people's hearts. The law was never meant to be a magnifying glass. It was meant to be a mirror. Do you hear that? It was meant to reflect back to you the brokenness, and the desperate need that you have for God. And as Jesus is teaching this, Jesus also is the hope. Because Jesus, who would have looked at the mirror of the law and seen no sin and seen no corruption, no blame whatsoever, kept the law perfectly. And yet, paid all of the penalty that the law requires. The law requires blood. Jesus gave his. The law requires blood from something that is pure and full of life. That was and is Jesus. He is the perfect spotless lamb. He is the perfect keeping of the law. He is righteousness. He is the one who knew no sin, And yet became sin on our behalf. And this is what's remarkable. Jesus in his sinlessness never bludgeons us with the brunt of the law, the way that we in our sinfulness do each other. Jesus comes preaching peace. He's saying, Your hearts are condemned already. I have no need to, I have no desire to condemn you rather to forgive what we need is not better behavior it's a new heart now a new heart will lead to better behavior that's not the point it's the heart and jesus offers a new heart his heart from the blood of jesus for us as christians and if you're here and you're not a christian Like the offer is still the same, right here, right now, receive anew the grace of God. Have your heart of stone be transformed into a heart of flesh and actually live out the intention of God in the law. I'm going to pray and then we're going to come to this table where we see broken body and spilled blood.